Um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the privileges we have is working closely with the seminaries. So we have interns that uh, are preparing and training for the pastoral ministry, and we are blessed to have interns that are with us. Today's kind of a special day for me. Uh, one of our, uh, Brian White is going to be bringing the word today, who's been a brother to me. Uh, for as long as we've been Christians, we have walked side by side down this path, and I'm going to try not to cry, I swear. It's a special day for me to, find, to have him here and sharing the pulpit together is a beautiful and wonderful thing to me, and so I hope and know that you will give a warm res welcome to pastoral intern and elder candidate, Mr. Brian White. Man, you almost think with that many titles, I'm trying to compensate for something, huh? <clears throat> Can we talk about our worship band? I mean, that was really amazing. I just, I, yeah, please. <clears throat> I feel like it's fitting to start with apology. You know, Rob has done such a good job of saving you from me for a very long time. But your luck has run out, and here we are. The hour of your doom is upon you. I have you for at least 30 minutes. <laughs> um. In all seriousness, it, this is, it's an honor to consider God's word, period, and to even pretend that you understand what it means. It's an honor to do that with um, other believers, and it's a, it's a huge honor for me to do that with my friends and family, so just know that. It's a really incredible honor for me. Um, if you've been attending recently, you've been working through the Gospel of John, and uh, Pastor Rob's been taking us through that. Uh, we're continuing that series now. This week, uh, two weeks ago, if you recall, if you were here, we, um, we saw that the crucifixion is um, of paramount importance and, and that it's actually not a defeat for Jesus at all, but it's really his greatest victory. Uh, these, these, in my mind, these final three chapters in the Gospel of John, really, um, they are the climax of his entire account. I mean, this is, the main, this is the main show that we're hitting right here in 19, 20, and 21. This is where it all comes together. And uh, today's section that we're going to go through is, is no exception. Today's section is really, I think, God's, um, the beginning of God's public display of his victory. And I think that it can, and if you're here and you're a believer, I think that it should really shape every aspect of your life. This should be the thing that we view all of reality through, is the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's everything or it's nothing. There's no in-between with this event. So uh, if I could ask you just one more time, if you are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're not, please don't feel compelled to. And I'm going to be reading from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 for us here. This is God's Word. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. 
For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray real quick. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the grace that we've experienced just in this day alone, the uh, sunshine and uh, the beautiful weather that um, we can look into creation and know you're there. Even more importantly, uh, Lord, we thank you for giving us uh, communication that we can um, have and understand that you give us your word in such a way that you make it so plain that even children can understand it. We thank you most of all that you give us your son who is the greatest expression of your love for us. And so we ask that as we spend the next few minutes marveling at just how amazing he is, that you would soften our hearts and that you would open our minds and that we could hear from you and come away with a deeper understanding of just how magnificent you are. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Our Lord, Rock and Redeemer. Amen. In 1994, there was a famous short story written by uh, Stephen King that was adapted for the big screen. The short story, I like the title of the short, the short story better, actually. It's called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. It's a great, it's a great little novella, but the um, movie was simply called The Shawshank Redemption. And uh, the story is about a man who's a banker in, from Maine in the late 1940s. In 1947, um, the main character, Andy Dufresne, is wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife and her lover, a golf pro, and he is sentenced to two consecutive uh, life sentences in prison. Maine had no death penalty. So he is wrongfully convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and he's given two life sentences back to back. The story is really um, interesting in that it almost exclusively takes place in a prison. Almost every scene takes place in a prison, except for a few in the beginning. Uh, and a few at the end. And the story um, really is about how Andy, a man who is dealing with this incredible injustice, learns to make sense of living in such a dark and cruel world. And the other main character is a man named Red, who's also a, a man who is rightfully convicted of murder, and he's doing a life sentence also. And just as a side note, Red is um, played by Morgan Freeman, and he narrates the entire movie in the first person. So if you know who Morgan Freeman is, he could read a dictionary to you, and it's suddenly the greatest story you've ever heard. You know? <laughs> and so he narrates the whole movie, uh, first person, about what Andy's experience is life, like. And it, the thing that I love about the movie is that it's not really about prison life per se, although that's the plot, that's the setting where the plot takes place. The movie really is about how Andy and Red make sense of living in such a cruel and dark world and how they survive that. Now, Andy is a man who knows that he's innocent, and so he has to, um, he has to make sense of how he's going to live in a world that he, doesn't think that, he, that he knows he doesn't belong in, and he thinks that he's going to get out of one day. And so really, as the, as the story unfolds, what you see is that um, Andy is a man who is grappling with finding a way to survive, and he finds out that what keeps him going really isn't just the simple hope that one day he'll be exonerated, although he wants that. It's the hope that one day he will get out, and he doesn't know how that's going to happen. As the years go by, these men are doing life in prison together. So as the years go by and they're best friends, it also brings Red into his own internal conflict because Red is a man who knows that he belongs there, and he knows that he will never get out, and he doesn't believe that he could even live on the outside. And so this sense of persevering hope that Andy lives with in the worst of scenarios uh, 
really brings Red into his own internal conflict on how to make sense of that. You know, the movie became a, a real classic, and it's not because it's um, of, about 19, 19 years into his imprisonment, Andy actually escapes. He breaks out of prison when he finds out that he won't be legally exonerated. And he even leaves clues for Red and tells him, if you ever get out of prison one day, this is where I'll be, and I want you to come and find me. Now, the movie became a classic, not because it's a, a great prison movie with a great prison break. I'm a sucker for that every time. But the movie exposes like this really deep undercurrent that hits almost universally with people. And the main theme of the movie really is how a person figures out how to persevere in a difficult world. The main theme really is about hope. That's what the movie's about. And you couldn't picture a better backdrop to really contrast that with prison life. Our passage that we're studying today really examines the same thing. Except what John is going to show for us has infinitely greater significance for every one of our lives in this room. I think that John, um, John is a master storyteller, and in telling uh, the beginning of the resurrection account that we're going to go over today, what he shows us is that, that since the tomb is empty, we can place all of our hope in Jesus, knowing that his love does not fail us. So I'm going to break form here, and I, instead of doing a classic three-pointer like every good Presbyterian does, I'm going to dare to be bold, and I want to do this by considering two questions. We're going to consider two questions about these ten verses. The first question I want us to examine, uh, consider together is, what does it look like when we place our hope in the Jesus that we want to believe in? And then the second question, what does it look like when we place our hope in the resurrected Jesus? So what does hope look like when it's placed in our own version of Jesus? What does hope look like when we place it in the Jesus who leaves an empty tomb? Now, at, at the onset here, um, in the first seven verses, really what John reports is uh, the different reactions that the three main players have. He talks about how Mary responds, he talks about how he responds, and then he talks about how Peter responds. And at the onset, I just we have to be fair with our friends here, right? We want to be considerate. There's some things that the disciples never could have known. Uh, Jesus actually says at the beginning of chapter 16, he tells the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, then he will lead you into all truth, and you will understand the things that I have said to you. And we have to remember that. There's certain elements of what they heard and what they experienced that they didn't have the spiritual ability to see yet. But beyond that, there's also a whole other dynamic here where there's things that they heard that they could have understood, but they didn't. And that's what really I want to focus in on here. We'll take a look at all three just briefly. I think what's universal for all three of them and what they experienced is that all Mary, John, and Peter all experienced a a conflict in their hearts that led them astray. And that that shows up in this text in a really um, in a really wonderful way that I think I think you'll be surprised at how much you and I can relate to. So first, Mary. um, A little background on Mary can be helpful. You know, she, Mary is the woman that is, uh, she's, really, she's really kind of an amazing disciple altogether. This woman in Luke 8 was um, freed from demonic possession by Jesus. And then in Luke 8, it says that she took up with the other women disciples and spent her own money to fund Jesus and the 12 disciples as they went about their public ministry. I mean, that's a devoted disciple, right? 
She's uh, one of the few people um, that's mentioned specifically at being present at the crucifixion. She's one of the few names that you see mentioned. She's actually uh, named specifically in three of the gospel accounts as the first human being to see the resurrected Lord. That's an incredible honor. Uh, in the first two verses here, I think there's one phrase that really um, gives us, tells us everything we need to know about Mary's heart and what her struggle was. And that phrase is in the middle of verse 1. The phrase is, while it was still dark. John is kind of painting the picture that Jesus had been crucified. If you remember two weeks ago when we went through the crucifixion account, He's been buried and he's been placed in a tomb and he's been buried now for three days. Mary is um, so distraught about the death of Jesus that she's been waiting for the first available opportunity to go to his tomb. This phrase tells you everything that you need to know about how much she loved Jesus and how deeply she was distraught about him being killed. When it says before it was dark, it means that Mary um, saw him crucified, went home, waited until just before dawn, and then she rushed to the tomb. This woman wasn't just anxious about going to see Jesus' body. She was distraught to the point where she couldn't sleep. This woman was devastated, right? That's really what, um, I think that's one of the things that really makes her response so perplexing in verse 2. She goes to the tomb and she finds that it's empty and then she runs to John and Peter and the first thing that she says is, is they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now this is really kind of perplexing on the one hand because she had been with Jesus during his public ministry. She heard him teach on everything from the kingdom of God and what that was going to be like to his own predictions, his re- repeated predictions about his crucifixion and then his resurrection from the dead. And yet this is the first thing that she concludes It seems that for her, when she goes to the tomb, the resurrection is not even a possibility. Now, I think all the internal factors that made up Mary's struggle to understand really aren't present from us. And to look into the text and try and theorize it about that really does us no good. But what we do see clearly, I think what John is wanting us to see is the effect on our heart and and the effect on our faith that it had. Somehow Mary uh, misunderstood Jesus. the man that she thought was Lord was crucified and now his body was stolen and she was crushed. You know, halfway uh, through the movie Shawshank Redemption, there's this really poignant uh, scene where Andy is years into his um, prison sentence and he's a, um, he's a worker in different parts of the prison. He's working in the warden's office. He gets this box of books and records sent to him by somebody that donates it and so he's rifling through it And he finds this record of an opera by Mozart. And he sees the record and um, he thinks about how long it's been since he heard music. And so there's a record player there that he's not supposed to use, but he starts playing the record. And it starts playing this beautiful opera and he's just struck by how beautiful it is. And he's sitting there in the chair and he goes over and he locks the door and he gets the idea to play the music through the loudspeaker so it would flood into every part of the prison. And so he hooks up the loudspeaker And as Red is narrating the scene first person, he describes what that looks like. And as you're watching the movie, you see in every corner of the prison, this opera music just floods into everywhere, into the wood shop, into the the prison hospital. It shows this prison yard where there's hundreds of men standing on a prison yard, 
and this beautiful music just rushes in and they all stop and just stare at the loudspeaker as this opera plays for five minutes. And as Red narrates it, he says, it was like a beautiful bird had flown into our drab little cage and suddenly all the walls had disappeared. And he says, for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. I can't help but think that that's how Mary felt when she met Jesus. I think that's just how she felt. I think that she had this experience with this man who freed her from demonic possession and she came in contact with a beauty and a power that was unlike anything she had ever seen. And she placed all her hope in that. Rightfully so. And so when Mary gets to the tomb, what she sees is the snatching of everything that she thought would change her life. All of her hopes stolen with his body. She was crushed. I think this is the point where if, if, you re, if you look at Mary at the tomb, this is the point where you'd say that she resigned herself to the fact that maybe she hoped in somebody who was finite after all. That maybe she made a mistake. And that must have been so confusing and so heartbreaking for her, right? We can sit here and from an emotionally and psychologically safe position and examine Mary's experience, but we fall prey to our own fears and misunderstandings all the time in our faith. We do the same thing in our own ways. Uh, how often do we have the sense of rising hope in our life that we believe and we know in our heart that the Lord is going to do something for us only to see it unravel right before our eyes and not understand why that is and feel like the more you pray for answers, the more silent God becomes. Because that's what Mary experienced. I think that if, you, if we think about Mary's experience from, from a spiritual aspect and on a heart level, we can relate in every way you and I lose sight of how God has promised to work in our lives, particularly in the midst of difficulties. How many times do you face difficulties in your life and then at the worst of moments, it seems like God is nowhere to be found? And that's exactly what Mary experienced at the tomb. It was the worst day in her life and somebody stole his body. I mean, that's heartbreaking, you know? We can empathize with Mary and she's one of my favorites. Peter and John are like, I don't even know where to begin with these guys. You know, when I read the Gospels, I, when I read the Gospels, actually, it's actually, when I read about the disciples and the things that they said and the things that they did, it's like one of the moments where you can really see God's sense of humor. I mean, these are the guys he picked. <laughs> Next time you read the Gospels, just keep saying that to yourself when they do something crazy. These are the guys that God picked. <laughs> Peter's like a bull in a china shop, right? This is the guy who at one moment, he's like, Lord, I'll never leave you. I will never, I will never leave you. I'm your man. Next moment, he's lopping another human being's ear off his head. The next moment, he's denying Jesus publicly three times in a row at the drop of a hat. You know, I was thinking about this. I think that Peter may be like the first legitimate ADD case in recorded history. This might be it. Might be the guy. John is, um, John is quirky in his own way, too. You know, John, what's really interesting about John is that he writes about himself in the third person, this whole gospel account, if you notice that. <laughs> he never says, it was me, John, I was there. 
He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is what I love about that. He says, you know, Peter is really wild. I can't, I can't even believe that guy sometimes. I can't believe some of the stuff he does. Isn't that crazy? But do you know who the disciple is that Jesus loved? This guy right here. Check me out. I'm that guy. <laughs> he wrote that. What amazes me about that is he wrote that in Scripture. It's there forever. It's on record. Like, you can't make it up. It blows my mind. A couple, um, I think... A couple of obvious examples from the Gospels can be helpful for us. The first one comes from John, uh, or comes regarding John, excuse me, and it's from Mark chapter 10, actually. This, again, is another one of my favorites. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. In 1035 through 41, John and James approach Jesus, and John and James say to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Wow. I mean, when I pray, I dress it up a little bit, you know. Lord, if it's your will, you know my heart, Lord. You know how much I love you, Lord. But do whatever I ask of you. These guys just march right up. They're like, we want it and we want it now. Here's what you got to do. Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. This is totally actually, in the account of Matthew, this is off the cuff, we might go off the rails. In the account of Matthew, it says that they actually send their mother to talk to Jesus, if you can believe that. I mean, I can't believe it. These are grown men who send their mother to talk to Jesus to get what they want. I like that. John, uh, now here's where we need to be fair, because John, both John, Peter, all the disciples, they had an idea of the Messiah that came right out of Old Testament prophecy. They're not making stuff up. They had a concept of the Messiah who would be a liberator, who would take up David's throne, who would liberate God's people, he would rule as king, and God's people would be free again. So that's how it started. Clear prophetic view. But then you get it in a sinful heart like John's, or mine, or yours, and it gets garbled up. And what John came out with was, I just want you to do whatever I want you to do. Is that too much to ask? And that's the version of the Messiah that he lived with. It was the version that he wanted. Part of it was good. Part of it was selfish. It was a mix of motives. Peter uh, gives another really stunning example out of chapter 8. He, um, the Gospel of Mark covers this uh, experience where Jesus has just given a public teaching. He turns to the disciples and he says, Who do people say that I am? They give them all the leading theories. They say, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say this, that, and the other. And then he turns to the disciples and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Right out the gate. An incredible statement. The thing that's interesting is that Peter had the right word, but the entirely wrong idea in his head and his heart. Peter also had this idea that he wanted immediate liberation from Roman rule from military and political oppression for himself, his family, and his people. And he was looking, he wasn't looking, he was counting on Jesus to do that. He was expecting him to do that. This account is really kind of interesting because as it unfolds, Peter actually is bold enough to rebuke Jesus. I mean, it's like he pulls him aside and he says, just a few minor details about this whole I'm going to be crucified and die thing. I don't think that fits the program that we have for you. I mean, it's a stunning display of self-willed power on Peter's part, right? 
Jesus rebukes him back. And you know, the NLT is really interesting how it covers verse 33 in the 8th chapter. It says uh, that, Peter, that Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are seeing things from merely a human point of view, not from God's. This last statement is what's really telling, and I think it applies to both Peter and John. You are seeing things from a human point of view. Everybody in this room is a human. At some point, we all view God from a human point of view, and that's what they did. They created God in a way that it was from their perspective, right? The problem with that is that, like Peter and John, uh, we tend to think horizontally about God and what he's doing in our life. We don't think about him in terms of who he says he is. We think about him in terms of who we want him to be, who we hope he'll be for us. Sometimes that's spot on. Sometimes our hopes are perfectly in line with God's will for us, and other times they're not. These examples are examples where they weren't, where they had a conflict of heart. You know, it's easy, again, it's easy for us to look at Peter and John and really just um, find humor in um, some of their foolishness and the way that they acted. And uh, I put my foot in my mouth at least once a day. You can ask my wife, so I relate. And they, um, they do the most outlandish things at times. And then they come away with this view of Jesus that makes you wonder where were these guys at and what were they thinking But if we think about it, we really probably have our own version of this. Everybody has their own version of this in their life, really. Um, In my study, I came across a guy uh, who was a a Jewish psychoanalyst. He was a psychologist named Viktor Frankl. I thought that I got it from Rob, but maybe that's not true. Uh, He was a man who lived during World War II, and he was in Germany. He was actually put in the concentration camps. He was in Auschwitz even, which I think is I think is the worst concentration camp there was. And he lived through five years in those camps. And being true to heart, as far as being a psychologist, he examined, um, he couldn't help but try and make sense of how people responded to suffering in various ways. And so he writes about that. His most famous book is a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's kind of amazing. And uh, he, he classified people into different groups and how they dealt with and made sense of suffering. He said that some people, when they got in the concentration camp, would immediately lose hope. They would get locked up. They would see all the suffering. They would experience the suffering in their own life. They would lose their will to live. They would assume the worst. They would not think that they were going to survive, and they would give up trying to survive. And so in the end, really, apathy is what killed them. They would lose their sense of hope for life itself. They would become apathetic, and then they would physically die. He says that another group... Um, would hold on through that experience by holding out hope that if they were able to survive the concentration camps, that they would be able to get all the things back in their life that they lost all at once. And then if they got those things back, that would give them the sense of significance and meaning that they felt like they lost. So many of these people that survived that were in this group survived the camps and got out, and they got many of the things that they lost back. But what's interesting about that is they suffered disillusionment because when they got everything back that they thought would give them meaning, it didn't. So the thing that they hoped for let them down. Some became so disillusioned that they committed suicide. Listen to what Frankel says. He said, Life in the concentration camp tore open the human soul and exposed its depths and its foundations. Listen to this. 
He found that the foundation of our hope, the thing that we place our hope in the most, is really what we're living for. That's really what you're living for, what you hope in the most. That's the foundation of your very life. John agrees with him. His conclusion really is astounding because what it shows us is that what we place our hope in determines everything for us. It determines how we live. It determines how we think about ourselves and others. It determines the condition of our hearts and it ultimately determines the status of our faith. It shapes our faith altogether. When we place our hope in circumstantial things like, uh, like Frankel aptly described, ultimately they always fail us. They will always let us down. Some of these things are the obvious things. Sometimes we place our deepest hope in the false sense of security that money will give us. Maybe you do that. More money makes you feel safer and you believe that will make you feel a sense of security and give you a sense of hope. Other people do it with physical attention. If we get enough physical attention from um, another human being, we believe that that will give us the validation that we're yearning for. That will really validate who we are. And so our sense of hope comes in physical affection from others. Some of us look for validation from our peers. I feel like sometimes in church, this one's huge. That if people think highly enough of us, then that means that we really are worth what we hope they think we're worth. And we place all of our hopes in that. Some of these things are not so obvious and even more complicated because we really find that we place our hopes in things that aren't bad in and of themselves. If you're married and you're in the room, how many times do we face the temptation to place our deepest hopes in our spouse that they'll meet all of our needs when no human being can do that? How many people do that with their family? I mean, how many of you do that with family relationships? If my parents approve of my decisions, if my kids loved me, If I didn't fight with my siblings, then things would be good. See, it's a roundabout way of going about finding out what you hope in, but if that's what we think about the most, that's what you hope in. That's what Frankel discovered with people in the concentration camps. What John is showing us here is that misplaced hope devastated the disciples, and it does the same thing to us. There's no way around it. The blessing in having our version of Jesus decimated when we come to Scripture, when we encounter Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, and having our version of Jesus just decimated is that it really frees us to begin to learn how to place our hopes in Him alone. And so that leads us to uh, our second question, and that's what would it look like if we placed our hope in the resurrected Jesus? You know, here in these last four verses, I think uh, the Gospel of John really begins to hit its, its true climax. I think it's here that the disciples begin to have a deeper understanding of what has happened after the crucifixion, what the empty tomb means, and really who Jesus truly is. Uh, the grave clothes that are mentioned here that are found neatly wrapped and unharmed in their place tell the disciples a few key things. It tells them that this isn't the work of grave robbers. Real quickly, grave robbers would never steal the body and then leave expensive linens and spices behind. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't take the time to unwrap a body and then run away with a naked body, leaving expensive linens. It also, John is also telling us that it's not the work of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' biggest concern 
was that this rumor going around that Jesus may actually rise from the dead could not take traction. They could not have that sticking. The last thing that they would do was create a crime scene where they stole the body but left more questions than answers. They wouldn't do it. John really is kind of showing us right here that something off the radar altogether took place. They're looking into an empty tomb, and it's none of the obvious answers for them. In verse 7, it says that uh, Peter goes in and finds the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. You know, John makes a point to show us the grave clothes and how they're neatly laid uh, aside, particularly the uh, head cloth. It's interesting, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, when he's writing these few verses and he's talking about the grave clothes, John is looking over his shoulder to the 11th chapter. In the 11th chapter, John records this experience where Jesus goes with his disciples. He goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has fallen sick and died, and he calls him back from the tomb. And when John records that account, he makes the comment regarding Lazarus when Jesus calls him out. He says, Lazarus' hands and feet were bound in grave clothes, and his face was wrapped in the head cloth. You see, what John is showing us is that when Jesus went to that tomb, he resuscitated Lazarus back into his old body. He called him back from the grave. He was still wrapped up in his grave clothes. But what he's pointing out for us is when the disciples arrived at the tomb, they did not conclude Jesus has been resuscitated. There's no grave clothes. John arrived at the tomb. He saw the linen wrapping sitting there, and he thought about Lazarus. He said, something different happened here. This is completely different. He's writing that for our benefit, so we know that what happened is that God did not resuscitate Jesus for our benefit. Doesn't that just sound weird? God resurrected Jesus from the dead. Why does that matter to us? In 1 John 2.2, 2, uh, John makes this statement. He says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Okay, well, what does that mean? That's a really, that's a weird word. What does that mean to us today? In the Old Testament, when God called, this is a thumbnail sketch. We're going to do a two-minute thumbnail sketch to catch up here on the significance of uh, the statement. When God called Israel to be his people, he did several things that were paramount about how they would carry out life together. Number one, he gave them a context of a relationship that was unconditional. We call that a covenantal relationship. He then gave them his law, his perfect standard for living, knowing that they wouldn't be able to meet it. So they knew the standard that they had to meet, and they also knew that it was impossible for them to meet it. And then God created a way for them to deal with that dilemma, to deal with their sin, because that's really what it was in regards to. He created a group of representatives called the priesthood. And what the priesthood would do is they would represent God's people. They would bring a sacrifice that God chose for them, and God would dictate how they would come before him. And he said, you would bring a sacrifice on behalf of the people before the Lord and that will temporarily deal with the sins of the people. And so the priest would represent the people before God, bring a sacrifice. It was an animal that he would present to God, and that would temporarily deal with the problem of sin that the people couldn't overcome on their own. They were temporarily atoning for the sins of the people. That's what that means. Fast forward to the resurrection account. Jesus has been crucified uh, Rob did this uh, great sermon a couple weeks ago, and when he hit the spot, it was really my favorite part of the message because he made a point of illustrating that when Jesus was crucified, 
he didn't just give himself up haphazardly. He chose to be our representative, our high priest, and he offered his own body as our sacrifice in our place. And so he represented us. Jesus lived a perfect life according to God's holy standard, and then he went before God at the crucifixion, and he made himself our high priest, our representative. And instead of bringing an animal, he offered himself his life to deal with our sin problem. That's what John means when he says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does that have to do with linen clothes? Jesus and his sacrifice meant the perfect requirement that God expected us to meet on our own that we couldn't. He did it in our place. How do we know that God accepted that sacrifice? This is the proof. You know when you go into, well, maybe not so much these days. I'm really dating myself in this sermon here. When you used to go to most places, they'd say, keep that receipt. That's your proof. This is God's receipt that he gives to you and I, an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. Because what he's communicating to you and I is that the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you and me on our worst days is perfect. And you cannot add to it. Think about your worst day. Think about the worst thing you've done. Jesus wiped it out and it was perfect in God's eyes and he happily accepted it. And God loves us so much, he knows that we would struggle understanding that and so he gave us an empty tomb with proof that we would know that that happened. I mean, it's incredible. The beautiful part about this is that when Jesus is resurrected, when they find an empty tomb, it also tells us that death is no longer the end because Jesus has overcome death and he's been resurrected into eternal life. And so we are able to know that death is not the end for us. It's merely a transition into eternal life because of our faith in Jesus. That's Okay, that, that may feel like, wow, this is really theoretical, 30,000 feet above the earth. How do I apply that to real life? Great question. Whether you and I suffer from the discouragement and the heartbreak that Mary did when we feel like God is not around, or whether we suffer from the bitter disappointment that every one of us will experience at some point like John and Peter did, living with our own version of Jesus, God loves us enough that he does not leave us to that. And that's what the empty tomb proves. You see, when we place our hope in the resurrected Jesus, our faith is no longer based on something that will fail us. We're free from that. Paul thought that this was the bedrock and the foundation of our very faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. He says at the end of the chapter that if what we preach is not true, we should be pitied more than anybody else because we are foolish people who believe in a wives' tale that is not true. That's how much Paul thought this was the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It's everything. Verses 8 and 9 really, I think, um, for me, are some of the most encouraging in the Bible. Verse 8 and 9 says, Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, he still hadn't understood the scripture that said Jesus must rise from the dead. 
Verse 8 says that John went in and he saw and he believed. You know, this is, John gives us an amazing testimony of God's grace to him and to us. This is a disciple who was with Jesus from the beginning, seen every miracle he performed, heard all of his teachings, and he says, this is the point where I went in and believed that Jesus actually was resurrected from the dead. That should be a huge source of encouragement for everybody in the room. Because it means that the slow of heart and the thick-headed like me are still going to make it. I mean, it's amazing. (laughs) Believe is a loaded word for John. He uses it over and over and over. In verse 31 of this chapter, he's actually going to say, this is the whole reason for this account, that you would believe in Jesus, and in believing in Jesus, you would have eternal life. It's the whole point of him making this record for us. He goes on to say in verse 9 that none of them really understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. And what John is making, he's making a broad sweeping statement about the fact that every scripture from the entire Old Testament, whether it's the prophecies, the written law, the poetry, everything in scripture that they had up until that point, symbolically leaned towards Jesus. It all pointed towards Jesus. So it's really an amazing picture when you put it all together and think about verses 8 and 9. John is saying, this is the point where I saw the empty tomb and I believed everything that Jesus told me that I couldn't understand. And all the scriptures began to make sense to me. Luke 24 records probably one of the most um, famous accounts of this where the resurrected Jesus shows up starts talking to two disciples as they travel from one city to another and then soundly tongue lashes them for being slow of heart for not understanding the scriptures. And then he goes on to show them from all the scriptures how it was prophesied that he would be crucified and rise from the dead again. <clears throat> Look, this, if, there's anything that I would, if there's anything I would hope that you get out of the sermon, this is it. That because of Christ... God accepts my faith and your faith when it is weak, when it is misguided, and when it's full of misunderstanding. Look at the disciples. They struggled with everything from making demands like it was the day before Christmas to Jesus to abandoning him when he was literally dying on their behalf. They struggled with it all, right? Let me just ask. I... Do you struggle like this too? I mean, is there points in your faith, just think about this and consider it with me, is there points in your life and your faith when your understanding and your faith is weak, so weak it feels like it's non-existent, where you have misguided hopes, where you go to other things much quicker than you go to Jesus, where your understanding of Jesus is just muddled and conflicted and full of confusion? Because that's what we see in the disciples. And they're the people that Jesus died for, just in the same way he does that for us. Let me ask, just who here hasn't chosen something over Jesus at some point in their life? Who here hasn't really gone to Jesus in prayer like John did and said, this is what I really, really, really want you to do for me. Please do this for me. And not listen to what Jesus promised he would do for us. I mean, the reality is, is everybody here, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have done it. I have done it. And we do it. 
God accepting our weak, incomplete, and growing faith is the best news in the world. It is the best news in the world. It's the best thing you're ever going to hear is that God accepts your weak faith. Jesus was strong enough to beat death for us. And our faith, no matter how weak it is, gives us all of Jesus' strength. And that's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that it's not about the strength of your faith, it's about the strength of your Savior. Can I get an amen? I mean, seriously, that's the best thing that you will ever hear is that it doesn't matter where your faith is at, but it matters where your Savior is at. And there's one thing that you know for sure. He's not in a tomb. He is resurrected. He is risen indeed. When we place our hope in the resurrected Jesus, we can live with the faith and understanding that is growing because we are free to live by grace alone, through faith alone, and a resurrected Christ alone. So to answer the question, what does it look like? That's what it looks like. People who know they can live by grace and grow in that understanding. Knowing that their Savior has set them free. Doesn't that sound nice? You know, the last five minutes of uh, Shawshank Redemption, I think, are my favorite. They're the most moving, I think, uh, in some ways. It's been several years in the movie, the last five minutes of the movie. It's been several years since Andy escaped from prison. Red has been in prison for 41 years and he's finally paroled. The one time that he goes before the parole board and doesn't ask, they let him go. (laughs) He's an old man. He's on the outside. He's living in a halfway house. He's struggling to adapt to life on the outside and he doesn't think that he's going to. And he actually contemplates suicide. But he remembers a couple things that Andy told him. He remembers the clues that Andy left him about where he would go, and that Andy said, if you ever get out, there's something that I want you to have. And so Red follows those clues. He ends up in a hay field that Andy told him about, that Andy made him promise he would go to when he got out. And in the hay field, he finds a package, and he opens it up, and there's a bunch of money, and along with the money, there's a letter. And he opens up the letter, and it's a letter that Andy wrote and left for him, hoping that he would find it one day. And in the letter, he writes, Dear Red, If you're reading this, then you have gotten out. And if you have come this far, maybe you will come a little further. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. The next two scenes, you see Red buying himself a ticket for Mexico, where Andy told him that he was going to escape to. And as he's buying the ticket and getting on the bus... He says to himself, I find that I am so excited that I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man who is at the start of a long journey, whose conclusion is uncertain. As the movie closes, you hear Red saying, I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it was in my dreams. I hope. It's a beautiful story about hope, but it's not true. It's a movie. You see, that's the difference between fact and fiction. Because of the resurrection, you and I know the end of our story. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is not like a hauntingly beautiful opera that invades our life fills us with hope, 
but it's fleeting and it goes away, leaving us crushed. It's also not a wonderfully inspiring story that fills us with the possibility of having a good life that has a good end, but never really knowing if that happens. The beauty of the gospel is that it shows us that Jesus loves us enough to die for us, but to also come back and to set us free from all the things that we can't overcome, even sin and death. That's real hope. That's resurrection hope. That's a hope that's built to last. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, when we even get a glimpse of just how beautiful and wonderful you are, it just leaves us bewildered, and we just have to wonder aloud, who are we that you take such thought for us, Lord? We thank you that you are such a gracious and good Savior, that you have climbed the hill, died in our behalf, and that you have rose from the dead so that our feeble faith does not latch on to theories or thoughts or what we feel, but that we can cling to you knowing that you have come back to save us and to set us free from sin and death. Lord, we ask that as we uh, go through our daily lives, as we start each day, as we start each moment of each day, that we reflect on the hope that we have in you that is sure and can never fail, and that that would be the motivation for all that we do. We thank you for a resurrection hope that never fails us, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.